Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast, which this week is in association with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio or online store for a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code EMPIRE. That offer code again, EMPIRE. And yeah, it's true. It's true. We found out this week that our studio is haunted by two spirits, a benign old man and a naughty young girl, apparently. So it looks like I'm going to need two colleagues of such lethal cunning who are also into a bit of exorcism on the side. Our geek queen comes fully equipped with the ability to banish ghosts, witches and goblins. It's amazing the skills you pick up when you're drooling over the Winchesters with their tops off. It's Helena Hara. That is outrageous. They hardly ever have their tops off. Um... But yes, I do know how to get rid of ghosts. Basically, oh, you just God. have to find the bones, scatter salt over them, uh-huh. and burn them. That seems that seems easy. It's really easy, okay. and and like that's why season one is a bit boring because that's literally the end of every single episode. Spoiler: oh. they salt and burn the bones. Okay. There you go. Next up is our art house guru, a man who can drive the demons out of the pod booth with the uh, recitation of one simple passage. The power of Christoph Kislowski compels you. The power of Christoph Kislowski compels you. Isn't that right, Phil Dissemlian? That's correct. <laughs> that is correct. That's correct. Um, <laughs> I, you heard naughty in relation to the Well, to the I, didn't say, I didn't want to say evil. In case, I heard what well, you were going to provoke you further. Yeah, I, didn't, I don't want to, you know, because yeah. we're vulnerable, aren't we? We are. We are vulnerable. Although on the upside, we can now blame said spectres for all technical snafus. Welcome all. Welcome spirits. Welcome those who are corporeal and ethereal. Well, you know, Mm. I like to be inclusive. Uh, Here is a question uh, that we got sent in this week. And I swear we didn't just make this up for the occasion. Uh, This is from at Mr. Sean Hayes, who says, podcast question, favorite unlikely haunted slash supernatural (laughs) location slash thing? I can only think about Scooby-Doo when I read that. <laughs> Genuinely, everything in Scooby-Doo. But it never turns out to be actually haunted. It's always the janitor or the caretaker. Yeah, and he would have gotten away on. with it too. Yeah. But they never do. All yeah. I've got is Dana's fridge in Ghostbusters. All you've got is Dana's fridge in yeah, Ghostbusters. Yeah, that's all I can really think of on this one. Haunted by a demon dog. Yeah, haunted by a demon dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, actually the egg box, that is an unlikely thing to be haunted. Yeah. I mean, that would not be one of the, you know, Family Fortune's answers to a haunted thing. Yeah, that's right. Helen, what have you got? I, I don't know. I couldn't really get past um, the ring, to be honest, and the haunted videotape. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, I don't know why. It just, like, it should be unlikely, and yet it works really beautifully in the context of, of the film. Uh-huh. Mostly because, let's face it, everyone watching a Japanese horror movie has at some point also watched a VHS. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it rings true and it gets through to our scarier little it does. corners of our mind. It does. Can you haunt a Blu-ray? Apparently not. And I think yeah. haunting like an MP4 file just seems even less likely. It does seem strange, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. There's lots of films about haunted, uh, the haunted internet, haunted mobile phone signals. Is that the right word? Or possessed, I guess. Mm. Uh, I like, um, I'm, a, I'm a sucker. It says favorite. Okay. Favorite unlikely haunted thing. I like haunted cars. There's lots of films about haunted mm. cars. But Christine is mm. always Christine, the, the one that, you know, that takes the biscuit for me. Yeah. You'd be, a, you'd be a, a frustrated demon if you haunted a laser disc. You would instance. be like nobody comes <laughs> oh, near me. Oh, Please no. play me. There must be someone yeah. out there. I've chosen yeah. the wrong format. Ah. <laughs> haunted dolls, of course. You know, Chucky's a haunted mm-hmm. doll. Annabelle. Possessed. Yeah. Annabelle the country. Annabelle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's true. All, that's all scary, spooky. Is anything? Is everything? Is anything ever haunted like a piece of fruit? 
Ooh. Like a haunted banana. No, because that's healthy and life-giving. That'd be scary, wouldn't it? <laughs> How would that work? Uh, what, a haunted banana? Yeah. Well, whenever you eat it, you die. Which I believe is what happens, right? Is that right? But then what, are you reincarnated as a banana? Like, how does it continue after mm. you die, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure you've thought this one through. I haven't thought this one through, I'll be honest with you. Haunted puzzle box in Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, well, is it really haunted? I don't know. But uh, yeah, haunted puzzle box. Why not? Haunted jigsaws. Ha- no, I haven't seen that film about the tire, but is the tire haunted or is it just <laughs> demonic? It's just demonic. Okay, fine. But then again, so is Christine. It's not haunted necessarily, you know, mm. so you have these demonic things. Uh, that's rubber. Have you ever seen rubber? You must have seen rubber. I haven't seen rubber. No, I that's the. Um, is that a um, Tremor movie? No. That's no, Tremor, rather. No, that's the French movie oh. about the killer tire called the, Robert. How does it kill people? It runs around, it has telekinesis, and it can, <laughs> it can make people's heads blow up. It's very angry, Robert. It? Yeah, it's really bizarre. You should, you should see it. It's very good. And then, of course, is Blood Beach, uh, which uh, it's not necessarily haunted, but the, the beach is, uh, there's a monster that lives on the beach, lives in the sand, and it kills people. Ooh. Yeah, Bert Young's not very happy about that. Yeah. So you wouldn't want that. No. You just think about the things that you wouldn't want in your life to be haunted, and generally speaking, mm. there will be a movie about that. Haunted trousers. You wouldn't want haunted trousers, would you? You really wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? A haunted Indian burial ground. Can you no, imagine? I don't think that's likely. No. That's can never you gonna imagine? Work. Never going to happen. What about the mirror in House? Does that count? Is that haunted, or is it just a portal? Oh, or the mirror in Oculus as well. That's haunted, isn't it? That's a haunted mm, movie. Good point. Ooh, scary. Oh, it's, it's really scary. Uh, next idea for a film, uh, haunted podcast. Haunted I think, podcast. I think we've, we've got that one locked down. If anyone can hear any voices, by the way, during this podcast, then you know, die, 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 everyone die. Then just, you know, just you know, mm. write in, mm-hmm. you know, just let us know, yeah. you know, and say to what claim you. And then we'll just, we'll, we'll get someone in to do something about it. We'll get an old priest and a young priest. We'll get an old priest and a young priest. <laughs> Joe Pasquale is my god. Did you hear that? Did you guys hear that? <laughs> what? So oh my weird. god, it's so, so weird. Voices, so strange. Right, let's move on because we've got a lot to get through and then, you know, we'll... The banging on the wall, I always thought, was people telling us to get out of the booth. I can't see any people, Chris. Mm. Anyway, if you want to have your question read out from Beyond the Grave on the Emperor Podcast, then do send them in. We're on Twitter as at Emperor Magazine. Uh, use the hashtag Emperor Podcast. Uh, we're on Facebook as Emperor Magazine. And you can email us as well, podcast at Empire Online, or contact us through a Ouija board as well. That also works. Time now for a first guest. Does this man need an intro? Uh, because he's only... David Bloody Hasselhoff, the star of Knight Rider, the star of Baywatch, and the creator of more interesting pop songs than you could shake a piece of the Berlin Wall at. Uh, he is absolutely, frankly, astonishing. He's on the show this week because he has a new show, which is a bit like Kirby Enthusiasm, but with the Hoff instead of Larry David. And it starts on 18th of June, 18th of June, 9 p.m on Dave, which is a TV channel, not a man. The Hoff came into the Paul Booth uh, very recently and he spoke to Ali Plum and James Dyer. But all manner of things, including, of course, his brief time as Nick Fury in the non-Marvel Cinematic Universe stuff. Uh, we talk about his music videos for Hooked on the Feeling, his music video for Kung Fury, uh, True Survivor, which is, you know, very interesting and you should probably watch it. And, of course, just being the bloody Hoff. Enjoy. <laughs> so we are here with the legendary David Hasselhoff here on the Empire Podcast to talk about Hoff the Record. Hoff the Record. I would like to ask you just to begin with, to kind of set this up, how were you first pitched this show? Because it's not your average TV show, is it? It was kind of a dual pitch. Uh, When I met with the uh, company, uh, Me and You Productions, who did uh, 
an idiot abroad with Ricky Gervais, they uh, started pitching me this idea, and I said, stop. I pulled out of my pocket Tales of the Hoff, and Tales of the Hoff was, was actually the series. And I had it in development in Los Angeles with another channel. Actually, at one point, Ryan Seacrest was producing with me. And it was a um, based on kind of the Curb Your Enthusiasm format, kind of like my life, but kind of heightened and... Um, the eternal optimist, mm-hmm. and um, no matter what I step in, I manage to knock it off my foot and keep walking forward and turning uh, stuff into gold. They just kept pitching their idea, which was coming to the UK and fish out of water, and uh, instead of having two ex-wives, I'd had five and, <laughs> and you know, have a, a German illegitimate son and an East Indian driver from... The, because I'm a big fan of the Kumars, and uh, uh, and a girl named uh, Ella, who is um, my secretary, who's not not qualified but lovely and has a real heart. And so basically, all those characters, and I had different characters, but mainly they were the same. They all had the same uh, idea, and and we sat down and we discussed um, how we would shoot, <clears throat> and, and so we went in and we um, we did <laughs> a week workshop. So we basically got together in a church and filmed everything and did a ton of improvisation, which involved um, something similar to the first episode where you see me auditioning to play myself. And <laughs> that was an idea that I had where, you know, my, my, my idea initially was going to a bar mitzvah, but I had to, you know, <laughs> get $50,000. I need the money, but I have to audition to play myself because maybe they want a younger Michael Knight. And I thought, oh, that's pretty funny. And also based on a real story that had happened to me, uh, almost everything in the show really, to be honest, has happened to me. We've just kind of colored it and changed it a little bit to make it uh, either funnier or sometimes not as funny because the situation based on what you've seen is not sometimes not as funny as what really happened. Um, so we workshopped it, and then we did all kinds of improvisations i mean everything from rolling around on the floor to <laughs> to you know michael knight in different languages to having a white michael knight a black michael knight a dwarf uh, uh, a lot of it based on um, stuff that's happened to me put the whole thing together and then we put a presentation together and i saw the presentation and i said well that'll never sell and <laughs> i hated it and i thought it wasn't funny at all and i just said well that was great. I worked my butt off for a week and a half, and, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, it was an acting exercise. It's the same thing as making a music. You know, it's part of the process is not about, you know, the money and the success. It's about the process, and it was a great process, a lot of hard work. Then yeah. we got an offer that, oh, my God, um, I said, well, I'm not going to do this show unless I get A, paid, and B, <laughs> B I have creative control the reason this works, though, is because you throw yourself into it so wholeheartedly. You know, you absolutely embrace the idea of it. I mean, you've always been someone who's very comfortable with their, the public persona, almost a separate character, the Hoff. Yeah. You know, was there a point in your career when you realized the Hoff was the thing? Well, now. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying in the car, David Asloff is dead, long live the Hoff, you know? It's all right. It's, you know, it's, it's you know, the Hoff is, I've done 31... I keep saying 31 commercials, but I've been saying 31 commercials for the last, I think, two years. I don't know how many we've done based on the Hoff, and it's all been Internet. I, I kind of realized the Internet um, action about 
six or seven years ago when I was doing The Producers, and I just kept saying, it's all going to the Internet. Come on, guys. You know, Michael Eisner's gone to the Internet. Let's go to the Internet. And, um, you know, I was always the TV guy, you know. And so for me to kind of break into being James Bond or the American James Bond or a movie, you know, it, it wasn't happening because I was the TV guy. Adam Sandler got smart and put me in a movie and got the highest uh, foreign sales on Click. And then, but nothing ever came of that. So um, I said, you know, I'm just going to keep forging ahead and um, keep kind of going in the direction of the internet um, with my work because I kept seeing, you know, Funny or Die and Comedy Central and all the stuff that you guys do on a, on a, on a regular basis here with Buzzcocks and 8 out of 10 Cats and all these shows that are on at night, which are really um, sometimes R-rated, mm. are not allowed in the United States, but they are on the Internet. So I thought, you know, come on, let's, you know, a joke's a joke and fun's fun and let's, let's talk. And um, now it's wonderful because the, kind of the Internet's come to me. You've got Sharknado 3 coming up and Ted 2, am I wrong? Shark Dino 3, a two, yeah, and then Ted 2. I'm not sure about Ted 2 yet. I just got a call from Seth MacFarlane saying that they're 40 minutes over and that, <laughs> that the Hasselhoff kit scene might be in the DVD. And to be honest, if he's smart, he'll probably put it in the DVD because it'll sell more tickets and then I won't be able to see it unless I see the DVD, but that's all right. I will say... I'm slightly disappointed that you're not wearing an Apple Watch. Because if anyone should be making phone calls on their wrist, it is surely you. Well, the funny part about that is uh, I did a huge commercial for Samsung. I'm wondering if Apple saw that because it was uh, the smartphone for Samsung where the the, uh, phone opened and the the watch um, came out, I think, about a year ago. You know, the the adverts that that we've fallen into are really kind of like the the making of an advert, you know. It's kind of like, it's kind of the funny or die sequence, you know. It's kind of like behind the scenes. I did one here for cough syrup. Bronco Stop, that is really terrific. And it's not even because of me. I think it's because of the guy. The guy that was in it was terrific. He's an English actor and very, very funny. And then I did one for um, pretzels. I played this very asexual German American. Hello! <laughs> oh, lean, lean, lean. What do you call it? Lean? Oh, Mr. Lean, yes. Mr. Lean. Mr. lean. What was it for? Lean pockets. Lean pockets. Lean Pockets and Bronco Stop are absolutely my favorite. Lean Pockets is so off the wall and so asexual and so crazy that they actually pulled it off the air because I mentioned (laughs) that if you don't eat Lean Pockets, you might grow up and get married and have hairy children. And to be honest, some lady wrote in, you know, you're making fun of women who have hairy children. And they pulled it off the air. Oh, for shame. (laughs) Isn't that great? But it lives on online. It definitely lives on online. So if you want to see the weirdest version of David Hasselhoff... Music videos that really play with it. I mean, was, was there not one recently which kind of promoted a film? or yeah. a, That, I mean, everyone was sharing that. They were yeah, yeah. It. We got 10 million over 11 million hits in a week. and uh, Just like that. It was crazy. It was, it, well, that, that whole story, you know, all these stories are, are really based on, on something that's happened to me in, in real life. Even like, like the seven Michael Knights in the ep- opening episode of Hoff the Record really happened to me. That mm. that happened to me, but they were se- weren't seven different Michael Knights. were seven washed-up TV stars. All of us had the same audition, you know, from John, from the guys from Dukes of Hazard to BJ and the Bear to L.A. Law, all the stars of all these shows, all in the same room, <laughs> auditioning for a tape. 
and it wasn't even a director it was a tape and we and we, i got such a kick out of it because all of our egos were just crushed <laughs> and we were all there looking you know all of us making hundreds of thousands of dollars auditioning to probably make 20 or 30,000 a week if if we were lucky you know and that sounds like a lot of money but it really isn't mm -hmm. because it's all cut down with with taxes and uh and agents. agents and managers, and by the time you get it, it's like, you know, taco and a burrito. <laughs> and uh, we were in there, none of us got it, and it was pretty much um, what that was based on. But uh, the music video is a really cool story. There was a young boy named um, David Sandberg. David Sandberg was making uh, local mu music videos and commercials for his friends and a couple things. I'm not really sure exactly what he did before, but he went online and, and did a show called Kung Fury, and got together with a guy uh, who said, hey, I can help you raise money through Kickstarter. And they went, he got an American guy to get him into Kickstarter and he raised $625,000. He raised $200,000 the first week and flipped him out because that's all he needed. He needed like 50,000 to complete. <laughs> and suddenly all this money came in and he went, yay. And so he finished the short and then Universal came over to them and they said, you know, we really believe in this and, uh, and we'd like to be a part of it. So everyone kind of jumped into his closet and basically called him he yeah. said david i got a call from i used to, first of all i can't believe i'm sitting across having dinner with the night rider it's unbelievable <laughs> and you're going to sing my song and and i, I live in i live in the woods in a small little village and all the people <laughs> who are kickstarter are staying at my house because they came over and some of them were in the movie and and then now um, dreamworks has signed me and i'm going to make a 40 million dollar movie and would you be in it? And uh, by the way, I have the Knight Rider script and I'm going, oh, 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 and I'm sitting across from this guy going, wow. So I looked at um, my nephew, who is my assistant, who's really savvy with, you know, online stuff. Kind of, okay, this is a funnier die bit. This is what you should do, sure. you know. She goes, he's hip and he's cool and he's young. And so I let him gear me. He says, hey, take a look at this. I looked at 10 seconds and went, I mean, it was Sin City meets the 80s, and I loved it. Yeah. I love Sin City. I love that stuff. So they called me. I went into Sweden with a hugely successful writer. I mean, first-class guy who had written everything from Celine Dion to uh, What Doesn't Kill You Make You Stronger, mm. which I think is one of the best rock hooks ever. And uh, and uh, we got in there, and he had worked with a guy, Blue Swede, and I had covered Hooked on a Feeling, and Blue Swede's behind me. <laughs> I'm one of the This is all meant to happen. And we cut a really cool song kind of in the vein of Danger Zone, and we called it True Survivor. And um, it's a really good song. And, and I kept saying, I need another song. I can't keep singing Looking for Freedom for the rest of my life. And here it comes. So now I'm doing that, plus a show about the 80s that goes on tour in October, which is based on 80s and 90s dance music, kind of like We Will Rock You, mm. a rock of ages. And... This show is premiering in Cannes this week, the 30-minute version of Kung Fury, which is just crazy off the wall, like Johnny Depp meets Miami Vice meets The Knight Rider meets Sin City, and it's all 80s throwback with uh, the evil person being a gay Hitler. And it's pretty damn funny. And the kid has really no idea, no idea what's happened. No one has. It's just kind of, kind of taken off. And it just just goes to show you that the internet as, as messed up as it is is fantastic yeah, and, yeah. And, and it really gives you an outlet that anybody can make a film whether it, even if it's a 10 second short mm. and like you see on youtube and become famous and affect people in a positive way and also get a, a message out so this guy did 
true survivor. And, you know, I find myself at night going, hmm, nine million. Well, oh, you know, going to bed and having fun. And because it's kept me kind of relevant and keeps me young. And, and I'm really, in a way, I thank this kid a lot yeah. for bringing me in. And he thanks me because Hasselhoff, 80s, the show, and now we're off to the movie. And I think it's going to be really interesting. You mentioned uh, Hooked on a Feeling there. Mm. Guardians of the Galaxy came out, was it last year? Yeah. And that has as a, as a big song, the big Marvel movie has the big song, Hooked on the Feeling, as part of it. Now, they were using the original Blue Swede thing, but right. for me, I only thought of you. <laughs> Truly, I'm not even kidding, I only thought of you. And I asked Chris Pratt, the star of the film, I said, you know, were you channeling Blue Swede or are you channeling the Hoff? And he went, oh, the Hoff. Definitely. Really? Yeah, he talked about the uh, music video with the fish and the cubes that go in and no out. No kidding. Yeah, so he's a big fan. I just wanted to pass it on to you. Wow. That Guardians of the Galaxy is in part you. You are in that film. You know, I, I only, I've only seen just a little bit of it. I've been moving so fast. I kept, you know, hearing it's, it's such a good thing. And they're playing. Hooked, my, my daughters came. My dad, they're playing your song. I said, it's not my song. <laughs> it's Blue Swede, you know. But uh, no, that's really nice to hear because... That, there's, there's a story about that video. I mean, that video, <laughs> that video, we made that, they gave me $25,000 and they said, make, you know, go make the video. And, and uh, so I, I took a, a DVD all over the world with me when I was doing Baywatch and I filmed it when I was doing Baywatch on the beach. I filmed it in Alaska when I was doing Baywatch. I went to Africa. I took it with me. I had the Maasai tribe dancing in the background. And I had a, a green screen on Baywatch. I flew my kids in. I flew my two wiener dogs. And I took all of it into this place called the Cut Hut. The Cut Hut just opened up. And it was a studio about this big. And the guy says, yeah, I have a new studio called the Cut Hut. And I said, well, here. Here is the footage. And here's $25,000. Make it crazy. I mean crazy. And I kept going in, watching cut after cut after cut. Comes out. I think, oh, I got the greatest video ever. It's good. And Jeremy, we hate it. We hate it so much. And I said, you hate it? I mean, can't you like sugarcoat it and say, well, there's some things about it we don't like. And, you know, no, no, no. And we don't sugarcoat it. We hate it. And go away. I said, go away? Yes, go away. This video has killed your career. And so these freaking Germans <laughs> sent me home. And I, and they, but, so I called my attorney. He said, well, you're going to get paid $250,000. I said, oh, good. Well, you know, F them. <laughs> I, I got $250,000. Oh, and I'm not recording. And because that's when gangster rap all came out. Uh, like, sure. You know, so it was like, kill you, kill you, yeah, I'll kill you. My, yeah. and, all, and, you know, here comes Hassel, Huga, Shaka, Huga. <laughs> I thought all the Germans would be, you know, having beers going, Huga, Shaka, Huga, Huga, more beer. You know, and, um, they didn't. Uh, then cut to, uh, cut to literally, I don't know, 10 years later? Yeah, about 10 years later, my daughter comes home from school. Dad, that stupid friggin' video is showing in school. What video? The video where you flew me and, and, and Haley and the dogs and all the, all, the, all, the, all the seniors are making fun of us. I said, you're kidding me. Oh, oh my God. So I called up and I said, to the, to the teacher, how dare you show this show? I, I take my daughters to this very expensive private school so, so their anonymity is protected. <laughs> and he says, Mr. Hasselhoff, <laughs> it's the number one video <laughs> on the internet. And I said, I'll be right in. <laughs> I'm going to teach a class. <laughs> and I came and taught a class. And now it's legendary. So it's all just a big joke, really. No, Pratt is a big fan. In fact, wasn't there, they kicked around, his name orbited... 
Because uh, Weinstein Company has the rights to a potential Knight Rider film at the moment, yeah, I'm right in saying. Right. His name was rumoured potentially attached to that as well at one point. So, yeah. who knows? I've lived a long life with the Knight Rider script, even before Glenn Larson just passed away. At one point, I had the rights to it. and It's a long, long story that kind of like, this is like the Forrest Gump story, you know. Forrest Gump took, what, something like 17 years to be made and started with a script in, a, in the back of a car in Venice Beach and... And that's kind of what's going to happen with Knight Rider. <laughs> By the time Knight Rider comes out, I'll be in a wheelchair, I'll be in the night night roller. Going, hey, that's really good. That's me. In a way, it's 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 exciting to me because David Sandberg with Kung Fury is bringing back Knight Rider the way it should be brought sure. back, with a little bit tongue in cheek, with a lot of fun and a lot of humor. Mm. And what the Weinstein Company will do with it remains to be seen. I'm sure it will be good, but it won't be Knight Rider. It'll be like Twenty Two Jump Street, or it'll yeah. be Knight Rider. They'll use the title. They'll change it around. They'll offer me a small part, and I probably won't go see it. <laughs> I see. was wondering whether you'd get a small part in a Marvel movie sometimes. Should, I should have had a bigger part. I was Nick Fury. I was Nick the Fury original. before Marvel. Before Marvel was even Marvel. I mean, Marvel was Marvel, but David Goyer was writing for TV and writing for me, and we did Nick Fury, and it was like before everything hit big and. You know, it's just, it's just, it's, it's Hollywood, man. You know, it's like, don't worry, we're going to put you in the movie. Don't worry, don't worry. Oh, there's Samuel Jackson playing Nick Fury. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, I like Samuel Jackson. He's a terrific guy, actually, and a really good actor. So my Nick Fury that, that I did, I was really happy with, because Stan Lee was there. He was there a lot. And, and he was, you're the consummate Nick Fury, you know? And he was cool, because we played him caricaturish, you know? He was like, you know, guys like you tend to cling to the bowl no matter how many times you flush, <laughs> you know? So we, we kept those characters alive. And that's what Guardians of the Galaxy was, yeah. you know? It was really a throwback to David Goyer and the humor, because a lot of these people, they, you know, they forgot the, the, the humor. They forgot the, the fun. Speaking of fun, Knight Rider, the most memorable episodes for me have to have involved Garth Knight. <laughs> Michael's evil twin. The Tash and evil soul patch combo, I think, was a, a very fetching look for you. My father was my biggest fan and my dearest friend, and um, he's just, he's, he had a great sense of humor. He said, uh, you know, Garth Knight's a better actor than Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I just said, Dad, that's just too freaking funny. <laughs> oh, I get this comment a lot, you know, it's either Kit versus Carr mm -hmm. or uh, Garth. And the fact that you, you grown men are still mentioning Garth is, <laughs> is a tribute to, uh, to cheesiness lives on because Garth was pretty cheesy. You know, I had the earring, a little fake earring I put in, <laughs> and a little goatee, and, you know. And I, I have some great, great outtakes of Garth, but um, I enjoyed. The funny part about it was every time I did a scene um, with Garth was a uh, stunt double. Or the guy we hired, you know. And I felt really bad for him because I said, you're never going to be seen on film. <laughs> Only the back of your head, you know. And uh, it was actually really a kind of a quite a good actor. Yeah, So because uh, I wanted to have somebody to play off of, you know. Of so, course, yeah. yeah. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank yeah. you so much. David Hasler, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And if you get a chance, uh, check out True Survivor on the internet. It's, uh, it's well worth it. Yeah, it's currently, just to make, make your ego just a little bit better, it is... Ten million six hundred and twelve hundred thousand. Yes, and then eight million of those are me. I just keep <laughs> clicking. <laughs> right then, movie news time. Get your movie news. Yeah, Chris Hemsworth. Well, you think Chris Hemsworth? You think secretary? Don't I, you? I do. Um, I do. Not in a not in a James Spader sort of way. Mm. Um, 
maybe sometimes. Chris Hemsworth has been Steady. cast as uh, as the assistant to the Ghostbusters in the new Paul Feig Ghostbusters movie. We got one! They certainly do. Mm-hmm. I hope he does it in exactly that voice as That'd well. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? He is our receptionist. That was that was the, mm-hmm. the line in Feig's tweet about him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's the new Janine, uh, which is delightful. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. Exciting, huh? Mm. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, it could be interesting. I wonder if he will wear glasses and have his hair done up because he's like, uh, yeah. you know, you're a just like... plain a, looking. You're plain looking. Reserved for the and office. Then, yeah, towards the end, he just takes off the glasses yeah. and, and his shirt and it's just like, <laughs> oh, wow. Hello. Just no, wondering. no one would notice you, unless he takes you, his hair down. Yeah. <laughs> Do some typing for me. That'd be nice. Very excited about one thing. It's not quite a movie so much as it is planned to be a TV series. Mm-hmm. Bradley Cooper wrote a spec script of uh, Dan Simmons' novel Hyperion, which is amazing in itself. If you've read that novel Sorry, and you have a you have a picture what? in your head of Bradley Cooper, these two things do not necessarily fit together. Sorry, go go back, go back. Okay, Bradley Cooper. Yes. Wrote yes. a spec script adaptation uh-huh. Uh-huh. of Dan Simmons' Hyperion. He did. He- Okay. I've broken you, Chris. Uh, you a little bit. Okay, well, just, just try and hold it together. Okay. So he apparently developed this with Graham King and Warner Brothers. Okay. Two very good people to be in business with. So it wasn't like a normal spec script where someone who hasn't got contacts in the film industry sits down and bashes out something in a desperate hope that someone will make it. He's fairly connected. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it started as a spec script, but then he brought it to them and they liked it. Now, that didn't come to anything, but the plan is now to make it an event series for sci-fi. Now, Hyperion is obviously part of the, the the Hyperion Canto. It's actually four books. Um, and it's incredible. It's it's kind of modelled on the Canterbury Tales. It's a nice mix of like philosophy and really hardcore science fiction. Mm-hmm. It, there's an intergalactic war involved. Um, there's time travel. There's energy trees. There's the Shrike, <laughs> which is terrifying. What isn't in it? Um, Dwayne Johnson. Puppies. Yet. Yeah, <laughs> it's I, I can't even describe it honestly. If you if you have the chance to read anything by Dan Simmons, take it take it now. He's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Chris and I are long term fans of The Terror, for example, which is one of his slightly more earthbound mm-hmm. uh, stories. But this one is mind blowing science fiction, and to do it as as a TV series, I think is a great idea. I would just like to say that it's not really a spec script if Bradley Cooper writes it. <laughs> Let's be honest about it. I mean, it's a peck script well, because of his tasty yeah, ass. Good, yes. Thank you. I, I He's not going to be like his limitless character, is he? Just sitting there desperately going, oh, God, this is never going to get made. He's on stage as the elephant man. He can speak French as well. Uh, he probably wrote this script in French just for shits and giggles because he can. He looks the way he does, which is annoying. And he's quite intelligent <laughs> and he's a very good actor and he can speak French. And now he's writing screenplays as well. Stop it. Stop it, Bradley <laughs> Cooper. Well, listen, I'm just pleased to see Dan Simmons getting a bit of love um, because, frankly, if, I, if it were up to me, all of his all of his books would be films or TV shows. I love him. Yes, but mainly stop at Bradley Cooper. Mm. Uh, sure. And also go go everybody and read Hyperion. Yeah, but mainly stop at Bradley Cooper. Give us <laughs> give the rest of us a chance for the love of God. All right. Um, this is interesting. This is a, Here's a story. Um, we'll, we'll talk about Daredevil and Punisher in a second. Okay. Uh, Goon. Goon. Sean William Scott, yes. ice hockey, comedy... Now, I didn't like that film, but I find myself increasingly in a minority on that one. Uh, you saw it with me, didn't I you? I quite liked it. You quite liked it. I think it's got um, ma- major problems, but he's so sweet. It kind of, you know. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's based on a true story, isn't it? Uh, so, 
I, this film has had such a cult uh, built up around it over the last few years. It came out in 2011, uh, written by Jay Baruchel, who then decided to play the world's most annoying person in the film as well. And it's got a bit of a cult, and now they're filming the sequel, Goon, The Last of the Enforcers, which uh, <laughs> will will star Liev Schreiber, Sean William Scott, obviously Alison Pill, um, I think Jay Baruchel as well, because he's going to direct it. I'm not sure if he's going to be in it, but uh, that's interesting. And uh, Alicia Cuthbert. Uh, formerly of being chased by cougar fame uh, on 24 is going to be in it as well. I, mean, I just want to talk about when you know. The, the, uh, am I wrong about this film? I mean, did, have you seen it? I film? haven't I mean, seen it. No, yeah. but I mean, it has clearly developed a a classic sort of cult tale, mm, hasn't yeah. it? And done well, presumably on DVD. I mean, Canada needs something of its own. <laughs> like it doesn't have enough. Well, not that much. It's got William Shatner and Mike Myers and well, Michael J. True. Fox and. Yeah, but you know, they've all gone to the states. Got Ryan Reynolds, who's very Canadian. He he loves his Can- he Canadianness, has, but like he's not as Canadian as Jay Baruchel, who literally has a maple leaf tattooed over his heart. Does he? Yes. No way. No, seriously. Really? So I feel like this is this is like pure Canada. This is like a big jar of like maple syrup uh-huh. and Tim Hortons. Right. <laughs> you know that they're gonna. That they're going to have. It's a reference mm. for a Canadian listener, eh? <laughs> Hello, uh, Canadian listener. Uh, Tim Hortons is a Tim Hortons. chain of like donut shops and Ooh, stuff in, in Canada. They also Great. actually have them in Maine, but you know. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. okay. Last week I pissed off so many people by declaring my uh, dislike for Big Trump Little China. I thought I might as well compound the issue by, <laughs> by going after Goon. Did uh, you say that? I did say that, yeah. Because I don't think that's a very good film either. Uh, Phil, I had battened down the hatches. If I oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that does not go down well uh, in, the, in these parts. But um, yeah, maybe Goon is a film I need to revisit. Maybe yeah. it's better than I thought it was when I gave it two stars. For there you go. They've created a Goonosphere. Who'd have thought it? I got something interesting. The extended Gooniverse. The Gooniverse. The uh, Terry Gilliam Don Quixote. Movie. Yes. Yes. See, this is a film that he's been making pretty much since it was sort of spec novel from Cervantes. <laughs> I mean, genuinely, like, I think he started it before they'd finished the final chapter of the book. Um, and, uh, but it's coming to, it's finally coming. Yay! Yeah, even, even our, again. like, even I'm, again. I'm, yes. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. No, everybody <laughs> calm down. Come on. Even the even the, the pod booth demons are, are cheerful about this one. But if it does, if it does happen, there'll be a bit of help from Amazon, who, intriguingly, Terry Gilliam has has uh, obviously had some, some difficult studio experiences down the years, to put it mildly. Um, but he's found maybe a sort of kindred spirit in the streaming service that Amazon provides. And, and, and I think they're helping get this financed and off the ground. It's got Jack O'Connell and John Hurt playing a kind of contemporary stroke fable, mm-hmm. fable-infused take mm-hmm. on the tale. Which is, uh, of course, uh, uh, an update from the original casting, which yeah. was Johnny Depp and Sean Rushfor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know he had an incredibly difficult relationship with Jean Rochefort. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd imagine that he would have a, a stri- more straightforward um, rapport with his current cast. And, uh, and Amazon are going to release it in the US. So we're going to see this as, a, as an example of a new form of kind of platform release where it's out in cinemas and then it's streaming about a month or so later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to hear about any movement on this project mm-hmm. just because you, just for Terry Gilliam's sake, apart from anything else, even apart from the fact that I would like to see this... <laughs> Just get it out of his system. Yeah. Yes. And you we know. saw George Miller's Mad Max, Fury yeah. Road, so yeah. come yeah. on. 
I, in a way, though, it would have been nice if they just the delays in this project had gone on for so long that by the time Gilliam actually came around to film it, Johnny Depp was so old he could play. <laughs> he could play the That'd John be, Rushmore that character. would be nice. Oh, I believe it's Don Quixote, isn't it? Isn't it? That's right. Yes, that's yeah, the, okay. kind of the yes, the, that's okay. the that's the hook, that's the hook. But yeah, more power to uh, to uh, Terry Gilliam. They're delighted to see it happen, and it's really interesting actually to see the, that Netflix and Amazon are getting into the film business in a big way, backing a lot of stuff and throwing Definitely. their money around, uh, which is great because I'm, I'm a big fan of 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 uh, Amazon's next day delivery, uh, which you can get for just no. Hello, <laughs> shut him down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> other delivery services are available. Um, the the yeah, and absolutely, and I think it's always been um, seen as a kind of an either or, a kind of binary thing, mm-hmm. streaming and theatrical. And mm-hmm. and here's an example where it could be both. Yeah, you know, perhaps as a way forward for for Netflix and Amazon and the other streaming services to not threaten cinema the cinema chains and there's a way for them to work together and this could be an example although obviously probably on a smaller scale I think it's fascinating because Netflix have said repeatedly that they're getting into the film business but they're not going to show these things on the cinema screen no I, that, that, we'll see yeah we'll, yeah. we'll see how, we'll see the how it goes works Absolutely. Um, there has been some news this week about threequels well, Hitch Perfect 3 I always saw it as an ACA trilogy well, I actually, I sort of quizzed them about that on set. I was like, is this actually, you know, am, am I going to be back here in two years and you're going to be telling me this was always intended as an epic trilogy? Um, and they were kind of joking about it. Um, but, and here we are. It's an epic trilogy. Uh, it's not clear yet um, who will be back out of the original Bellas who should all have graduated by now, um, unless there's some kind of mentoring scheme going on. But obviously the last film introduced the much younger Hayley Steinfeld as Emily, so maybe she'll be kind of the centre of a new Bellas. But it seems unlikely that they would completely lose Anna Kendrick and Rebel Wilson if those people are willing to come back. Um, And I imagine Elizabeth Banks would want to be behind the camera again, but who knows, we shall see. Um, But but yeah, so there is a Pitch Perfect 3. There is also coming... um, a Bad Boys 3. Joe Carnahan mm. is in talks to rewrite and possibly direct that movie, yeah. um, which I think we'd all been hungering for since 1990-whatever. <laughs> what was Bad Boys 2 even for, the 2000s? Bad Boys was 1995. Okay, and Bad, Bad Boys, Boys 2. Bad Boys 2 was 2003? Was it? Even was that late? Three. Was it? Yeah. Wow. Who could forget? Maybe 2002. Where will Will Smith fit into this, do we think? Well, he seems to, I don't know. Mike Lowry. Wherever he wants to fit into it, I guess. If he wants to do it, he then he'll do it. And if he doesn't, then he won't. He feels like his career is at a very, <laughs> very, profound. very interesting juncture right now. Mm. He needs to, his son, incidentally, being cast in the new Baz Luhrmann TV dance uh, miniseries. But for Will, I mean, he turned down Independence Day 2, which has just added the mighty Bill Fickner recently. And mm. I think that's a mistake. Um, Suicide Squad well, looks like a risk, and he needs to play his, you know, put his chips on the right on the right um, numbers. I mm-hmm. think now, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. this is interesting. This mm-hmm. may be time for him to revisit one of his old. Quite possibly, but mm-hmm. I think Joe Carnahan. Uh, I really like Joe Carnahan, and I think yeah. if anyone has, he's 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 a smarter Michael Bay. So I think he's a very good choice uh, to do something like this. Are we hungry for Bad Boys Three? Probably not, <laughs> but I'm sure Martin Lawrence is, so oh. we'll see how it goes. A couple more things. Frank Castle, a.k.a. The Punisher, coming yes. to Daredevil Season 2 on, on the aforementioned Netflix, uh, played by John Bernthal, who will be the fourth big screen Punisher because it's not a character they've never really got right successfully on the big screen. So he follows in the footsteps, the bloodied footsteps of Dolph Lundgren, uh, Ray Stevenson and Thomas Jane, of mm. course. Um, he certainly has the nose to play this role, I think. 
He d- he looks exactly right. Like he really, it would be hard to find someone more appropriate looking for the Punisher. And he is a good actor. He's a regular. I mean, I remember like I, I watched it on a plane, Grudge Match. It's not a good film, but he was really decent in it. Mm. Um, and and he's cropped up in you know in much much better movies. Frankly, since Wolf of Wall Street, he was mm. in. Um, looking forward to seeing him in Sicario. Um, you know, he's got some really good stuff coming up and he's been working very consistently with, with really good people as well, which kind of speaks to his skills. A Fury as well, he's yeah. really good in. Yeah, absolutely. Made famous, of course, on The Walking Dead, which, on which he was very, very good as well. Yeah, I'm excited about this. We won't talk about it too much, you know, because there's still a long way to go before that season comes out. But uh, Daredevil and The Punisher mm. have, shall we say, different value systems. So, <laughs> uh, as in one values life and the other one not so much. Not so much. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how they come in. Because mm. Daredevil, uh, sorry, Punisher started out as a bad guy in the uh, in the Marvel comics. Yeah. Before very quickly, you know, in the, in the nihilistic 70s, I realized that he was more fun as a hero. So they turned him into that. Uh, I'm a big Punisher fan. Uh, it's one of my favorite characters. And I love a lot of the Punisher arcs. Uh, Garth Ennis' arc on the Punisher, um, both in the traditional Marvel comics and then the Max comics, Marvel Max series, which allows swearing and ultraviolence, um, are very, very, very good if you're into that sort of thing. So I'm really excited about this. So two two thumbs up. Mm, very much so. Mm. Anything else? A couple of things. Um uh, we should talk about Ben Wheatley and Free Fire, which yeah. is his next film. Talk about things I'm excited about. Well, indeed. Um, and this is, I mean, talk about a, a good cast. He's hes just added uh, Jack Rayner and Sam Riley. Um, Sam Riley. Sam Riley. So this, um, this setup has Brie Larson's character who brokers a meeting uh, in a warehouse mm-hmm. between two Irishmen who are played by Killian Murphy and Michael Smiley, of course, a, a Wheatley regular at this point. Yep. And then there's a gang had, headed up by Army Hammer, and Charlotte Copley, an mm-hmm. interesting combination, who are selling them a small arsenal of, of weapons. Um, and the handover goes wrong, and a gunfire breaks out. Mm-hmm. Gunfire breaks out. And that's kind of the setup. Um, ben Wheatley is probably the most productive director working at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, hardest working. I mean, yeah. High Rise is not even out yet. We're yeah. extremely excited about it. I've heard some extremely exciting things about it. Um, but he's already moved on to this, and this has Martin Scorsese executive producing. And if it you does. know, that's a heck of a recommendation, I think as well. Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm enormously excited about this. Uh, there's been a couple of cast changes. Uh, I started filming this week, mm-hmm. and there's been a couple of cast changes because of scheduling uh, reasons. I think Luke Evans is on Beauty and the Beast. He was originally going to be the star, I think maybe in the Jack Rayner role, which is interesting because that would cement the relationship they began on High Rise. Yeah. And uh, Olivia Wilde was going to be the Brie Larson character and also had to drop out because of scheduling changes. But this is a damn good cast. Set in Boston, which is interesting uh, because I believe it's not going to be shot there. Mark, some of it will be shot there. But yeah, Ben Wheatley is an incredibly exciting filmmaker. Um, I think he's fantastic. I think he's knocked it out of the park with every single one of his movies thus far. And I'm I think High Rise will continue that tradition and uh, so will this. Yeah. I'm super, super stoked for this movie. Super stoked. It feels like a slightly different thing from anything he's done before, just in terms of genre. Yeah. You know, seeing his action, he hasn't really done pure pure action beats um, in in a whole. He's done obviously Mm. bits, bits here and there, but, you know, just uh, can't wait to see something that really kind of riffs off 70s. Yeah. 70s cinema, kind of down and dirty stuff. This sounds a little bit like the, the warehouse scenes in, in Reservoir Dogs, just yeah. in terms of, you know, a standoff in an enclosed space. Mm. And I think that's kind of an interesting 
it's an interesting thing because he's so good that he can find ways to tell big stories in a very small you know, scale so he can keep control of it and doesn't kind of, you know, get sucked into the studio system, which I think is great. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm tremendously excited. I think, um, you know, this, and, and he's, he moves on to projects so quickly that he announces things and puts them by the wayside and then picks up something else, which is even more exciting. So there's still the I, Mark Robain film that mm. he might do with Nick Frost. There's still Freak Shift, which mm. is which sounds great. And, so, yeah. And I'll probably have th- both of them done by the time this one comes out. Quite possibly. By the time this podcast finished recording, <laughs> possibly. That wasn't me talking over you, that was the Spectre. Oh, of interest. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, I think, you know, we talk a lot about massive, massive budget superhero movies, but here's someone that's, like, achieved something completely relatable. You know, his first film, Down Terrace, 15 grand he made it, you know, Nuts and Berries. Eight grand. Eight grand. Eight grand. Plus seven grand mm. for the Nuts and Berries. <laughs> and, and, um, and in six years, he's now being executive produced by Martin Scorsese from a standing start. Yeah. Um, he's made, you know, this is, is going to be a sixth, move, sixth movie. We've seen four of them. They're all great. Mm-hmm. Um... This is what you can achieve. It helps if you're prodigiously talented. Yeah, it does help to be prodigious. Yeah, exactly. And he's got amazing collaborators. You know, Laurie Rose is DP, yes, Amy yes. Jump, his wife, who's yes. his co-writer and his editor as well. So, you know... I'm it- trying to encourage people out there to just get started. Yeah, but be talented <laughs> first. Stop it, Bradley Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> One final thing I want to mention. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt talked this week about his planned adaptation of Sandman. Okay. Um, which merits... And just a, a quick mention. It's he said it was slow but steady. So really, don't count your you know don't hold your breath just yet. We're not going to see this for a little while. Um, he points out that it was it wasn't written like like uh, Watchmen was you know all at one time. It is a little bit episodic. It was written over six or seven years. So to try and make it into uh, a feature film with a beginning, middle, and end is a little bit difficult. It sounds like he's basically ba- basing it on that first arc where the Sandman escapes from in ca- captivity and basically has to kind of reclaim his kingdom. Um, but he says, which is quite interesting, um, this, big spectacular action movies are generally about crime fighters fighting crime and blowing shit up. This has nothing to do with that. It was actually one of the things that Neil Gaiman said to me. He said, don't have any punching. Um, because he never does. Um, it's going to be a, like a grand spectacular action film, but that relies on n- none of those same old ordinary cliches. So that's why it's taking a long time to write, but it's going to be really good. Now, he's totally right about the no punching. That is 100% correct. That's what Sandman should be. Um, the fact that it's going to be a grand spectacular action film seems a little odd, mm. but perhaps he's using it to kind of describe something that isn't really that. Well, just to yeah. kind of sell something that isn't really that. So, fingers crossed that that's a slight misrepresentation of what he's doing. We shall see. We shall see. It's now Friday morning, uh, the day after we record the main podcast. We're back in the pod booth because, uh, as I'm sure you know, some very, very sad news hit yesterday, Thursday, uh, two very, very sad deaths. First of all, the death of Ron Moody, uh, so brilliant as Fagin in Oliver. Uh, he died uh, yesterday at the age of 91. Yeah, I mean, he was, I think, for many people, the, the definitive Fagin, which is saying something. I mean, Ben Kingsley took a crack at it a few years ago and everybody kind of, essentially, with the greatest of respect to Sir Ben, shrugged and went, yeah, but mm. it was really Ron Moody, wasn't it? He wasn't singing, was he? Exactly. He did. Yeah, exactly. You were on was, set of that, weren't you? The uh, Oliver. Coast. I was on yeah. set of that. Yeah, but um, but you know, it's just it, he was he was one of these guys who seemed to be able to do everything, like stage, screen, TV, even EastEnders for a while. Mm. Um, he he didn't really seem to have any limits, and he was working right up until the end. I think I'm right in saying he was on stage just a couple of years ago. So, mm. um, so you know, huge huge plaudits to him for that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I played Fagin in uh, a high school production of uh, Oliver years and years ago, and I just ripped his performance off. Uh, <laughs> just wholesale. Uh, he was better, uh, as we said. <laughs> this does not surprise anyone, <laughs> he, I don't think. He was he was much better. But uh, yeah, he um yeah I think he regret he expressed regret that um, after Oliver he turned down loads of pr- productions and loads of of new films and mm. stuff. But uh, hey, if you're gonna have one role to be remembered by, then uh, then uh, Fagin and Oliver ain't bad, ain't bad at all. But then also almost immediately, actually following the news of Ron Moody's death, came the news that uh, Sir Christopher Lee. The great Sir Christopher Lee had also passed away. He, he passed away on Sunday night, but the news wasn't released until yesterday. At the age of 93, where do you begin? Well, I guess you begin at the end, which was that he worked pretty much all the way through. Mm. He, he was still working in his 90s. And, yeah. um, you know, the Hobbit, they obviously came and shot him over here because he couldn't travel mm-hmm. so much to New Zealand by that point. But he was still doing, you know, great, compelling, scene-stealing stuff right up to the end. Mm. Um and uh, what what a legacy of of I guess of villainy first and foremost. But I think it's probably the the, the performance he'd want to be remembered for isn't isn't necessarily <laughs> from the big franchises that we that we that we're so fond of. He played Muhammad Jinnah, um, and that's the one I think if you'd sat down with him and talked about his filmography, that's the role I think he was most proud of. But obviously, you know, it's hard to look past Dracula, Scaramanga, Count Dooku. There's so many. What was your favourite? Duke de Richelieu and The Devil Rides Out, mm. which is a film I love. And that um, was another of his favourites, I think it was, it's fair yeah, to say. Absolutely, yes. yes. It's probably Hammer's best film, I would say. Yeah, it's it's a great film and a rare good guy turn as well. But then there's mm. The Wicker Man, there's Lord Summerisle, there's tons of, of you know, haven't you mentioned Saruman in, uh, <laughs> in, in Lord of the Rings. And I thought it was really lovely that he turned up in uh, the Battle of the Five Armies because I think he had been frail in recent years. Yeah. I remember seeing him in a public appearance a couple of years ago and the voice wasn't quite there and he was walking with a stoop for the first time ever. I mean, I, I met him a couple of times. I don't know, you guys? Mm-hmm. Yes. And he was this incredible, upright, old-fashioned gentleman, you know, full of class and grace and dignity and he just had this posture about him. And this is the first time I'd ever seen him looking frail and it was a bit of a shock. Uh, so it was great to see him restored. Uh, the voice was back and the you know, the, the, the bearing was back, uh, the bearing of authority was back in the Battle of the Five Armies. And I think that's a nice way, uh, that's the way I'm going to think of him as a, that's, I, I, that's what I'm going to think of as his last film, I think. Yeah, even if there's a couple of things more to come. Yeah. I actually sat down last night and watched The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, um, wow. Where he plays Mycroft Holmes. Um Ooh. And, and thoroughly put Sherlock in his place, as we said, which which was quite kind of fun to see. Um, and I kind of love him in The Three Musketeers as well. It's not the yeah, biggest yeah. role, but he's just so menacing in it. It's wonderful. He had a great, there was a great line that was going around on Twitter yesterday about, um, you know, there are going to be terrible films and you kind of almost don't control that, but you don't have to be terrible in them. And I think that's true. Like, even if you think about films that were perhaps less great, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of certain prequels, perhaps. <laughs> uh, he was never terrible in them. Um, and that's where the thing that's important to remember. I think I'll remember him as Karamanka. Just because yeah. that's a film I watched so many times. And his his villain, um, his villainous turn in that one, um, and his kind of command, gravitas, control. He was a very controlled character. Um, and yet at the same time, he had a knick-knack. And there's just this little <laughs> element of like, why the did I hire this guy? <laughs> I love him, but really, yeah. you can just imagine the recruitment process. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know why, but I'm going to take you on. <laughs> um, I do. I do love that. He. I. I actually, when when that film got re-released in HD, there was a press 
junket and i and i was lucky enough to interview him for that and he had some lovely memories of being in um thailand on the mm. island in the ship basically in the next door cabin to roger moore yeah, he was yeah. a very keen opera singer yeah uh christopher lee so he would wake up in the morning and just bellow out some arias and roger <laughs> roger would emerge bleary-eyed being woken up by like figaro or whatever <laughs> Mm. Um, and he used to walk around the island. He had to get the tan, so he'd walk around the island in the buff. He told me, <laughs> which which raised an eyebrow, but you know, had to be done. <laughs> it had to be done. I, to be it done. raised your eyebrow, or it raised it Roger Moore's eyebrow. All of our eyebrows at the same time. Roger wasn't there, but I'm sure it would have. I'm sure it, would, it wouldn't have raised his. He's I'm probably, sure it would have raised any. You know, yeah, <clears that's <clears a, throat> a sight. Um, but yes, uh, wow. I mean, what a what a what a legend. He space spanned generations of yeah. film of cinema and this you know here and elsewhere 67 years as an actor incredible yeah. must have been strange for him you know coming out of the war and, and yeah. seeing cinema develop in the way that it has and but it's amazing because he had such a he has such a life um, his autobiography which came out a few years ago mm. is a cracking read it's a great read it's very funny as well but there's stuff in it he can't tell you about he served mm. in World War 2 essentially as a secret agent and I like to think, probably won the war single-handedly. But he, he did. He can't I mean, tell you about it. Would you bet against him? Uh, there was a, no. an interesting, there's a, there's a sketch that Ian Fleming did of his vision of Bond. It's, it's on the internet. My brother sent me a link to it the right. other night, which looks uncannily like Christopher Lee. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I mean, obviously, they were, there was a, con a connection. I think they were step cousins. Yeah. But he clearly, you know, there was a little bit of that, yeah. of Lee himself in the archetype of Bond. Were they both in secret... Not secret intelligence, and then the kind well, of dark black ops of Second World War. I read this yesterday that he was in a he was in a, a group in World War Two called the Ministry uh, for Ungentlemanly Ungentlemanly Warfare. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what's that <laughs> movie? The cutlery round on the Nazis. It's just amazing. It's basically <laughs> Kingsman. He was basically a Kingsman. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that they could do all this crazy stuff and then like, like I'm not going to talk about it. I would organise well, a spoiler official, podcast because the next the week to tell everyone what I did. He was. He was I know, but that, that, so that expires after yeah. a certain number of years. But he still would. He still talk kept about it. He kept it on too. But he had but other things. I think. To talk I think about. that that's the experience of a lot of people who were in actual war is that they don't want to talk about it. Like Jimmy Stewart never talked. No, I know, I know, of course, but, but yeah. I'm being I'm being a bit glib, but at the same time, I mean, he, you know, he did have some astonishing experiences, and obviously, he and him, Ian Fleming played golf together. I think yeah. they they a lot of the Goldfinger stuff came out of their 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 rounds. At, uh, I guess was it Sunningdale or Royal Berkshire or whatever. And um, I think he was going to be there was a moment where he was going to be Doctor No, mm -hmm. I believe, before uh, Joseph Wiseman took the role. There was, uh, so he did get his Bond moment eventually, but. Yeah, not as early as it could have been. Uh, yeah, yeah, and he was amazing. Such a diverse career. He was a singer, as we know. He recorded heavy metal songs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> just what? Uh, he was on the cover of Paul McCartney's band on the run. It was uh, extraordinary. I did not know I, that. Is that true? Yeah, it, the, the oh. cover. Of, you, 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 Is that Christopher you, Lee? That's Christopher. I Lee. love that. There's Christopher Lee. Yeah. There's uh, Michael Parkinson. <gasps> there's uh, James Coburn. I've never there's... looked at it. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did not know. The that. only I think there's only like two or three members of Wings actually on the cover, including Maka. And, uh, there were some real criminals that they that were literally escaping from prison, and they just yeah. caught them in a. It's an astonishing wow. cover. But uh, you know, he. Uh, I I I read this quote yesterday going around Twitter quite a lot, which was that on. One of the Lord of the Rings films, Peter Jackson said to him, "Okay, so now just uh, imagine what it sounds like when a man gets stabbed in the back." And Christopher Lee goes, <laughs> "I don't have to imagine." <laughs> Going, okay, <laughs> all right, thank you. Uh, but uh, that's yeah, a he mood was, killer, isn't it? <laughs> he was uh, that voice was amazing, mm -hmm. and uh, you know he. 
<laughs> I'm not making this up. I thought he didn't do it for uh, for a while, but he would call up the Empire office if we made a mistake about him, either online or in the magazine, he did, and he yeah. would he would <laughs> he would correct us. And I was on the end of one of those phone calls once, which was um, which was a lot of fun. The problem is that becomes a career highlight, not even something that you feel particularly. <laughs> You know, well, I guess you're upset because if Christopher Lee tells you off, you know, Christopher <laughs> Lee just told you off. But on the yeah. other hand, you got to talk to Christopher Lee about Precisely. your work. So. Well, it, it's amazing just how the, the attitude snaps in. It's like, you know, I got the phone call. It was like, it was lunchtime. Everyone was gone. And I was only an empire a few weeks at that point. And I picked up the phone and went, hello, could I speak to Ian Nathan, please? And you're going, no, no, Ian Nathan's not here. Sorry. You know, really standoffish, Lib, yeah. dismissive <laughs> call center attitude. Well, uh, can I speak to Ian Freer? And you go, no, no, Ian Freer's not here. Look, he's at lunch as well. Everyone's at lunch. Uh, look, can I help you? And he goes, this is Christopher Lee. Oh, God, Christopher Lee. Hello, hello, quick, can I help you? Can I apologize for my previous attitude? Oh, my God, don't kill me. Uh, but he was he was an amazing guy. Lovely, lovely guy. And uh, he will be sorely missed. I mean, legend. And your, your phone manager, worth pointing out, has improved remarkably since then. No, I'm pretty much the same. Across the board with whoever's calling. Yeah. Even if, even if you're not a film star, feel free to call in. Everybody's very friendly. Um, <laughs> I think yeah. we should tweet a picture of that Band on the Run album cover we should. later today. We should, and we will. We will. Uh, Christopher Lee, who died this week. Very exciting news about the podcast. We're doing another live show. Uh, we're doing a live show at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Uh, next Sunday, Sunday, June 21st. It's very short notice, I know, but it's taken a while to get everything together and get it all confirmed. Uh, so, tickets are just £5. Usual format. Four of us will be up there, live, studio audience, talking nonsense. We'll also have some amazing guests, which we will confirm as and when they are confirmed. Uh, there will be guests, I, I assure you. Please, please, <laughs> please have to be guests. Um, and it's going to be a lot of fun. And it's 11.30 on Sunday morning. So uh, if you've been out the night before and you're in Edinburgh and you fancy a little bit of a hangover cure, we will throw raw eggs at you if that's what's needed. Uh, do come along. We're going to be at the Filmhouse 1. Uh, you can uh, buy tickets through the Edinburgh Film Festival website, which I believe is edfilmfest.org. But don't quote me on that. And just five pounds, just five pounds. And there'll be goodies and spot prizes. And we'll, you know, we'll richly abuse you as well. No, which is, um, well, we won't definitely throw eggs at you, just to be no. clear. No, we won't do that. Yeah. But it'll be a lot of fun. So we would love to see you there. Uh, last year's was enormously uh, uh, exciting and successful and a lot of fun. So please do come along to see us live in Scotland. And then hopefully we'll have another live one in London in the not too distant future as well. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. Uh, here is Ali Plum to tell you about the science bit. Yes, it's science bit time with your friendly local regular editor, Ali Plum. Squarespace, of course, is the fun and easy way of creating your own personal website, portfolio or online store. And guess what? You get a 10% off code with Empire. The word to put into the coupon box is Empire. Empire, E-M-P-I-R-E. It looks professionally designed, no matter what your skill level. There's no coding required, easy-to-use tools throughout. It's got state-of-the-art technology powering it to make sure it's secure and stable and not going to, like, fall over in the middle of the night. It's trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. And it starts at just $8 a month. You can work it out. I think about £5 is about right a month. And you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So... Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, remember, Empire's the offer code, 
10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, as they say, build it beautiful. Thank you for listening not only to this science bit, but to the podcast generally. Please enjoy the rest of your regularly scheduled programme. Okay, time now for another guest. Uh, he's another icon, another legend who needs no introduction, but let's give him one anyway. He is the Withnail of Withnail and I. He's a brilliant actor. He's a TV presenter. I love his uh, Hotel Secrets program. Uh, he's a writer. His his Withnail's autobiography is hilarious. Uh, he's a perfumer. He's a perfume. Uh, and he's much, much more besides. Uh, he can currently be seen acting in John Burman's Queen and Country. He is, of course, Richard E. Grant, and he was talking to the Decemnian boys. Enjoy. We are thrilled and delighted that Rich D. Grant has found time in a very busy schedule to come and chat to us on the Empire <laughs> podcast. A man of many parts. Um, Thank you. And uh, one of them is, is a, an avid tweeter. And I noticed from your Twitter feed that you went to spend the weekend with Bruce Robinson, your old Rhythm and I mucker in Hereford in his cottage. I did indeed. I wonder what you took for his pot. Uh, what I took of his pot? Well, first of all, he lives in a vast estate because he's made such a fortune. So please don't, <laughs> d- please don't delude yourself that he's living in a little cottage. Um, what did I take for him? Um, uh, I took him some of the finest wines available to humanity <laughs> and um, some scones, if you want to know. Did you take some scones? <laughs> oh, really? yeah. Because he doesn't eat and I love them. <laughs> so it's my excuse to scoff them. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Well, we're here really not specifically to talk about to talk about your weekends in Hereford, although that okay. would be fun too. But Queen and Country, yes. which is uh, John Borman's uh, latest, uh, and latest last. movie. And last movie. His last film. It's last film, in yeah. which you play a military man. Um, and I was also just the other night watching you playing the Iron Duke Wellington as well, your major cross in this film. Yes. Um, a rather, he's not a martinet exactly, but he's kind of a rather starchy stiff military dude who just wants old fart. yeah a little bit yes <laughs> yeah uh, wellington of his different character what is your what's your military your military pedigree minus Richard? zero but i have a very long face and i can look sneery without trying very hard so i'm now moving into the sort of old sneery colonel parts and majors and oh. dukes in my in my vintage years that's what's happened. Really? Do you have <laughs> yeah. your eye on a Bridge on the River Choir remake one day, perhaps? Absolutely. I think it's a wonderful idea. <laughs> yeah. Is it true you played a Nazi soldier on stage many years back? I did in a play by Robert David MacDonald, who used to be the resident writer of the Glasgow Citizen Theatre, in a play called Summit Conference, which was um, a fictional meeting between Eva Braun and Clara Petacci, the, t- the mistress of Mussolini and the partner of... Adolf. So it was, it was a fictionalized, obviously, meeting between these two women, and the soldier turns out to be um, Jewish. Okay. Oh. And you had dyed your hair blonde. I dyed my hair blonde. You have done so much research. Yes. <laughs> you wait. Yes. Okay. How was that experience? Have you had to do that many times in your career? Do uh, the only, it's funny that you mentioned that because the only other time I've had to dye my hair blonde, having beseeched them not to let me have a wig, was playing Michael Heseltine in The Iron Lady with oh, uh, Mel oh. Streep's film, playing Mrs. Thatcher. And for some reason I said, look, you know, my hair is... Uh, Michael Heseltine has more hair than I had when I was, you know, in the full <laughs> fig of being a teenager. And they resolutely just refused, I think they're sadists, um, to let me um, wear a wig. Everybody else did, including Mel Streep playing Mrs. Thatcher, but they made me dye my hair and it took about 16 goes to get it. And it still didn't look right to me. <laughs> it still looked like a wig. <laughs> do you get funny looks when you're when you're kind of out and about with 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 dyed hair from the general populace? You know, you get funny looks any any which way. Whether your hair is, you know, 
A woman came up to me in a supermarket the other day, a very old woman, pushing a trolley, and she said, hello, are you Richard E. Grant? And I said, yes. And she said, yes, I don't like you. <laughs> and wheeled off. And you go, what the hell? You know, what are you supposed to answer that? Thank you. It was important that you know that. <laughs> she had to tell you. No, it's a good reality check. Just to know that the fact that just your being alive has irritated the pants off somebody. But that doesn't happen very often. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, you remember it. <laughs> yeah, like a bad review. <laughs> John Borman is, uh, he's another Empire Podcast alumnus. Is he? Um, he is, he's been on the podcast and, and, and his, his, he's kind of part of British film history and heritage. Extraordinary. And I, I had posters of Deliverance and Zardoz when I was a teenager in the 70s growing up in Swaziland. In Sean his, and the Nappy. In his Nappy. In the sort of, yeah, but, you, but Charlotte Rampling um, uh-huh. had no clothes on it and also Sarah Kesselman. And so it was... It was, you know, at that time, things, it's hard to imagine, but um, seeing naked women on screen was such a rarity um, at, at my age group, um, as was then, so because of censorship. So I, I remembered it very, very clearly. So it wasn't, it wasn't really for Sean Connery's <laughs> Giant space hairy happy. nips that I was, it was for Charlotte and Sarah Kesselman. So, you know, to go, to go forward all these years and be asked to be in a film by this legendary director and knowing that it was going to be his last one was you know a great privilege and he was very grumpy during the making of it um you know he said i haven't got time i haven't got that many years to to go to be nice to people you've all got to <laughs> step up to the mark so um you know he he was forever but as a result if somebody is grumpy like that when they approve of what you do it feels all, all the better. Mm. So the Simon Cowell factor, you see people, no matter how much praise they're lathered on by the other three stooges, it's only when Simon says, you know, gives them the thumbs up that they, you know, they see them glowing like, yes. you know, covered custards. Yes. We can't compare Simon Cowell and John Borman, though. No, we can't. Simon <laughs> Cowell is not made point blank. <laughs> at all. Did you, did you get any Cross-cultural good... cultural reference. Did yeah. you get any good stories from John while you were on set, or was it He too, had too? endless stories, and... Um, I think it would be very uh, inappropriate and disingenuous of me to to reveal what he had said about people, but they were paint-strippingly honest. And uh, <laughs> some of the people are dead now, so I suppose. But it's best if he tells you those stories rather than me secondhand. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. he is unequivocal about what he thinks of you know people and how they've behaved. Speaking of which, a little bit, I mean, I've been flicking through your fantastic classic book with nails thank you where you do say what you think and uh, particularly there's a chapter about hudson hawk mm-hmm. which is just fantastic i loved rereading it this weekend was there any fallout from that because you're very honest about the whole experience uh well put it this way i haven't been asked to work for joel silver or uh bruce willis again as a result of that but you know it was you know it's like i'm sure everybody tells you this you go into a movie it's like going to a into falling in love or going to a romance, you begin the the thing thinking that it's all going to be, you know, light and roses and bells on. And then as the things, you know, the wheels start coming off the trolley and the thing goes haywire, that's, you, we began that film with, you know, great intentions, seemed like such a good concept and um, a great cast of people. And then it just went up the swanee very, very fast, especially as it cost the studio an enormous amount of money mm. at that point in time. Have you ever considered doing a follow-up? People, people, I would to love to read a follow-up a follow-up not to Hudson Hawk but to the book and I'm curious 
of all the films you've done since since you released this, which one would make the juiciest chapter? Uh, well, I, I did publish uh, diaries about the making of my autobiographical film Wawa mm. ten years ago, and the indictment of the French female producer who almost prevented the film getting made um, is, I, you know, that that's pretty out there, and I, you know. She attempted to sue me, but oh, wow. Um, wow. everything was emailed and and had been you know laid out that she couldn't deny what had gone on. So you know that was all quietly dropped. But she she was inadvertently a self appointed villainess of the thing, and it wasn't rather than just thinking that it was personal to me. Uh, she proved her incompetence to 120 people, <laughs> mm. you know, i.e., the cast and the crew. If you ever get into a lift and it's her, Bruce Willis, and Joel Silver, <laughs> you'll start out quickly. <laughs> no, I shall pull the machete out of my sporran and whack their heads off. That would make a great movie in itself. I'd oh, okay. the heck out of it. <laughs> that would, I'd watch that film for sure. We have to ask about uh, with Nolan, obviously, but just I, I didn't realise that, that, that Daniel Day-Lewis w- was, was offered the role. He was, yeah. Um, and then you work with him on Age of Innocence. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I didn't realise that, that obviously his method is well known. Mm-hmm. He does stay in character and your character and his character were, were in an adversarial relationship. Indeed. And, and he was very cordial with you up to a point and then sort of stopped talking to you for four months. Is that, is that, is that uh, what happened? Absolutely true. On the first day that I met him, uh, we, they had a, the lighting generator broke down and we were shooting in a theatre in New York City and he invited me into his Winnebago or caravan or whatever you call it and we ended up speaking expecting to be called any minute to go on to the set and I think five hours passed because the generator had broken down so we just ended up sitting yakking away and found that we knew a huge number of people in common and he was fantastic company and very very funny and uh, you know I thought oh it's my new best friend here in New York City Daniel Day-Lewis and then the next day, I saw him in the makeup trailer and he didn't greet me, he didn't speak to me. And I greeted him and absolutely blanked. And I said to Michelle Pfeiffer and Winona Ryder and Miriam Margulies, I said, do you know if I said something or has he said something to you that has upset him? And Michelle said, no, he is now in character and his character hates your character. So prepare yourself. And... He never spoke to me again until the last day of Alec McCowan and I finished, I think, a week before the, the rest of the cast finished. And at the end of the scene that we did, Scorsese said, you know, I'd like to say, you know, well, Richard E. Grant and Alec McCowan are leaving today and, you know, clap from the applause from the crew and stuff, which is how they always do it. And Daniel broke out of character, if you like, and you know, threw his arms around both of us and we were absolutely gobsmacked because, and he said, you know, what a great pleasure and privilege it was to work with us, having not spoken to us at all. <laughs> so it was, you know, but, you know, method in his madness, he has three Oscars and I have none. So, <laughs> so it's obviously, he's done the right thing. I'd love to see the exact extraordinary. Moment. The exact moment where he goes into character, whether he sort of closes his eyes. His eyes and, roll yeah, back. He <laughs> comes out. You see, this is why he could never have played with Noel, because he would have died. 
during the filming of that, I think. Oh, Just I don't know. I think he would have been absolutely astonishingly brilliant. And if he had played the part, I know that I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. No, I can't imagine anyone apart from you playing that part. It's oh, just that's very generous. entirely impossible. And they I have been paid 25 times, and I can't remotely imagine anyone else doing oh, it. Oh, thank you. Well, um, no, he is, he is astonishing. And if you see him in the early scenes in, in The Name of the Father, mm. when he's dressed in all the sort of Withnail-type gear... Um, I th- when I saw it, I thought, oh my God, thank goodness. Uh, yeah. He didn't get to play, you know, he chose not to play the part because he would have been absolutely perfect. Well, I have a question that's sort of semi-related to this and it's a little random, but yeah. it marries your two professions because obviously you're a perfumer as well now. I am now. Perfume Ponce, yes. Perfume Ponce. You have Jack and I believe Jack Covent Garden is the, is Jack the, Garden the, is now the next in the franchise. It is, yep. The it's Jack franchise. Um, I wondered, this is something that's really interested, I think, not just me, but a few of us, is that when actors wear aftershave and yeah. scent on set mm-hmm. to get into character. Is right. that something you've encountered before? I interviewed Stephen Graham recently and he described how his character was a slightly seedy, gone to seed copper. And he wore, as it turned out, the exact scent that I wear. Which is? <laughs> it was a Comme de Garçon, I think. And he said he'd chosen it specially because it, it made him smell kind of rank and corrupt. He thought that Comme de Garçon was rank and corrupt. Well, they're my words, but, you know, maybe I took it a little personally. Wow. But I just wonder what you thought, you know, of that. As a, is that something that you've... No, I think it is, it is true that you, you know, with now patchouli oil. So it's, um, I think that, that having the smell of what that character would wear or what they smell like is, you know, my obsession with sniffing everything. I've, I've always done that. You've yeah. always done that with all yeah. characters you've played? Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Who's been the weirdest smelling character you've played? Uh, I played a character called Courton Romney, which was a male version of Vivian Westwood in the ill-fated Robert Altman film Preta Porte from 1994. Mm. And I knew that I had to get the most overpowering and pungent perfume I could... <laughs> Um, for this character, so the one that I chose was called Angel by Thierry Mugler, which is to me absolutely rank and offensive, but it absolutely fitted this the bill of that person. Stings the nostrils. Did you have any complaints from the large cast? Ah, <laughs> uh, no, because Everyone's we were saying. filming in Paris and everybody was so uh, besieged by free clothes and free perfume from every direction that I didn't think they noticed mine in particular. Mm. It's a crazy film, that. I watched that quite recently on Netflix. Oh, did you? Yeah, right. I hadn't seen it before. Oh. So when you say ill-fated, it, it didn't go down that well with the, the it critics. It was an absolute disaster because it, it was the film that came after The Player, which was the thing that you know restored and resurrected Altman's career in his old age. And uh, so I think the fact that it had no script to speak of was its great failing. I wondered, going back to Jack, I had just had a thought. We had Antonio Banderas on the podcast, and he, he also is endorsing... Well, he, He's I a mean, multi-squillionaire from endorsing a perfume. Endorsing rather than making. Obviously, yeah. you're very much Big nuts, difference. Right to the, the I know, grassroots, as I, it were, Yeah, self-financed, one-man yes. brand. I'm not comparing the, the entrepreneurship level, but he's involved, <laughs> and he appeared in his own advert, his own TV commercial. Oh, did he? Yeah, it's a rather... You see, he can afford TV commercials. Well, I was going to say, when, when you reach that point, yes. I wondered who you'd want to have, if it wasn't going to be you, who you'd want to have starring as the face of Jack. Well, you two actual... are handsome brothers. You two could do it. <laughs> oh, yes. We're kind of uh, hoping you're going to say that. Yeah, we've well, drawn all the paperwork. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've actually Sign shown it already. Yeah. Okay. It's just us walking around. You don't really want us to be the face of anything, <laughs> to be honest with you, but thanks anyway. What are you, radio faces? We're not even that. We're podcast even faces. Yeah, podcast is. Pod faces. So it's a level below. So nobody knows what you look like? I think they look... I don't know. 
I look best in HTML, to be honest. Think the Hobbit <laughs> listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit hairier and shorter. Yes. Large-footed. <laughs> is it true that Donald Sutherland was one of the people that really inspired you, and specifically in Kelly's Heroes, which is a film yeah. with a, an amazing cast amazing of cast at a time when cinema was maverick in itself? Exactly. I, I remember seeing it at a drive-in cinema in Swaziland, and I'm thinking, and I, I used to get Photoplay and Films Illustrated magazine on uh, subscription once a month because, you know, it was pre-internet, pre-television, all of that stuff. So that was my way into the, the world of the movies. And I saw, I read that he had, he was over six foot, had a very long face, didn't look conventionally like what movie actors are supposed to look like, and he grew up in a tiny town in, out, out back of Canada. So I thought, well, is this my role model equivalent from where I grew up? So he was a great, he was, he was somebody that I absolutely, you know, followed. And then, of course, I got all my sex education from seeing him bonking the Don't incomparable <laughs> Judy Christie. Christie in Don't Look Now. So, you know, I thought, well, my goodness me, the curly hair was, wasn't, <laughs> the curly haired wig wasn't quite what I had in mind. But um, no, he was indeed absolutely a role model. All your education in life came from, have you met, have you met, have you met the man? Um, I've, I've met him and he gave me great advice because I, I asked him, I met him in Los Angeles about, 20 years ago, and I said, do you ever get to the stage where you you stop having to audition? And he said, oh, that's the wrong way to look at it. You've, you've got to be uh, prepared to audition at all times. And just think of it when you go in, that you're auditioning them as much as they're auditioning you, yes. but whether you'd want to work with these people. So I thought that was a very good mindset about how to deal with it. So I've followed ever since. Have you met all of your heroes at this point? Have I met all of them? Yeah, all of them. I have. And did they all live up to what you expected when you met them? Well, I was, you know, this is, I'm sure, very unfashionable to say, but I had been, I saw Barbara Streisand in What's Up Doc when I was 14 in a very tight tank top she was wearing. And I thought that she was just a goddess. I thought she was an absolutely astonishingly fabulous, sexy being. So I have obsessively followed her ever since and bought every recording she has ever made. And I've now met her four times. Wow. So I, I know how many minutes I've, I've spoken to her on each occasion. So that's been a, an enormous thrill. Did you manage to keep your cool the first time, sort of not, no, not letting first, on how the much The first time knew. I met her, she thought that I was stoned. <laughs> and, uh, and I came with a terrible cheesy line. I said, no, no, I'm just stoned to meet you, Barb's, Babs. <laughs> I know, so cheesy. And did you do that thing where you kind of had to try and disguise how much you knew about her? And... Oh, I couldn't disguise anything at no. all. I told her about a fan letter that I'd written her when I was 14 because I'd read in Photoplay that she was having you know, romantic problems with uh, Ryan O'Neill. And I said, come to Swaziland, you can stay. We have a lovely house with a swimming pool and nobody will know who you are here. And she said, I didn't get it. So I said, well, you're still invited. I've got a copy on me. Exactly. <laughs> but we have to let you go. But we would love to talk again. Will you come back and Empire Podcast for a second time sometime? Thank you very much. Yes, if I live long enough, I would love to come back. Thank you. And please Gents. write with nails too. Okay. It's on the way. <laughs> okay. Did he smell great? Oh, that's a really good question. I, I didn't sniff him. I thought that might be weird. <laughs> uh, so I, I was tempted. Well, I, I mean, told you about sniffing the guests, Phil. He, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I've been found out on that score before. But he's um, <laughs> he's a, a self-confessed sniffer, which is how he got into the whole business of um, the the Jack stuff. And uh, and he, I've read interviews where he sort of sniffed his surroundings, but he conspicuously didn't <laughs> smell this because I think <laughs> maybe what he was picking up was the cold, chill scent yeah. of mm, death. That's probably it. Yeah. Potentially, but he may just have thought it smells weird in here and not too polite to mention it. Yeah. 
so. I think <laughs> so. Right, let's talk about this week's uh, movies. Uh, the biggest show in town is Jurassic World, which is the first Jurassic Park movie in 14 years. So yeah, this is the return to Jurassic Park, or now called Jurassic World, now fully functioning as the theme park that um, that Hammond always envis- envisaged, um, complete with enormous, you know, cups of iced uh, sodas and you know souvenir T-shirts. Spared no expense. Spared no expense whatsoever. No, as you can tell by all the product placement. Our story begins as they are trying to gear up for the launch of a new attraction at the park, a new asset which is, of course, a genetically engineered dinosaur, the Indominus Rex. Indominus in Latin means untamed or untamable. And Rex uh, means dog. Rex. Is, right, thanks, Chris. So uh, <laughs> so they're gearing up for the launch of this um, this creature. They haven't really studied what it's capable of, which was, it will prove, a mistake. <laughs> Bryce <laughs> Dallas Howard. <laughs> That's the bloody thing, guys. Bryce Dallas Howard is the park manager uh, who's basically in charge of everything. She's having a, um, a, a visit from her essentially long-lost nephews who she's been too busy working to see for about seven years. Um, she's so cold and detached. Oh, so cold and detached. <laughs> if only there were a fun-loving guy around who could Darn. perhaps... <gasps> You or, know. What? Or, or a massive crisis involving <laughs> lots of people being killed. Yes, one really of those put two the things fun back into your life. would really help her love life. Anyway, uh, coincidentally and totally unrelatedly, there is also Chris Pratt what? as Owen Grady, who is an animal trainer who is working with velociraptors to get them basically obeying basic commands. Um, I wonder if that will in any way come in handy when the Indominus Rex inevitably escapes and begins to cause havoc in the park. This is a film basically about that answers the question: How many people need to die before Bryce Dallas Howard can remember her nephews' names? <laughs> oh, that's not fair. That's she remembers much. her nephews' names; she just can't remember their ages. Oh, the names, the ages. Yeah. Yes, I thought it was tr- just tremendous fun, so much fun. And um, I was a little when the when the early trailers came out. It was a mm-hmm. bit like it could go either way. I think we all were. We were a bit like that. The dinosaurs looked like they hadn't really the effects hadn't quite moved on that as much as we thought they might but I think looking at it now having seen the film that's probably makes you think how amazing the ILM work was on the original film rather than any kind of negative indictment on this one the dinosaurs are great there's the practical the nod to the practical effects of the first movie in this one there's lots of little mm. little nods to the Spielbergian mm. world but not over, they don't overwhelm it they're a little kind of weaved in quite nicely and it's got a dark slightly dark streak too and a sort of fun sense of humour all the way through, which is uh, in keeping with Spielberg's vision too. So I think Colin Trevorrow's did a, done a really, really good job with this. Yeah, I, I, I wrote the Empire Review. I thought this movie was terrific, and I went in with low to medium expectations based on. I, I wasn't impressed with a lot of the trailers. I'll be honest, and I, I, I'm with you. I thought the I was going. How, how do the effects look worse now in 2015 than they did back in 1993? Can anyone explain that to me? But actually, they're they're fine. They're fine. Uh, we don't have the wow factor anymore. Because we've seen it all before, essentially. But, but that's what the film's about. That's what the film's about. The film's about modern life and people getting so bored with stuff, so bored with the incredible, uh, which very quickly becomes the mundane, that we need more, bigger, faster, stronger, deadlier. And that backfires this pretty damn quickly. Um, I thought this was terrific. Five minutes in, and we'll discuss this. We have a spoiler special podcast coming up and we're going to discuss it in a lot more detail on that one. But five minutes in, I was like, I'm liking this. 
he's making good choices, mm. you know, because I was worried. And then 20 minutes in, I was going, no, I'm really liking this. An hour in, I was like, I'm, I'm, I think I'm loving this. Is that I, when you took your trousers off? That's when I took my trousers off. Because I you can usually tell if I like a film. Yeah. If I come out in my boxers, yeah. that's probably indelicately phrased, but that there really you go. Um, then it's a, it's a good film for me. Um, and it doesn't quite stick the landing for me. I have some issues which we won't discuss here uh, with the last act. But um, for me, it's, it's just great fun. There's lots of good suspense sequences. Indominus Rex is a very hissable villain mm. uh, that you know pops up in the, in, in just when you need it. Um, I, I liked uh, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard in this movie. I like the kids. I didn't want them to get chomped or munched. This is you know it's fine. It's, it's got a lot of good action set pieces. Uh, it's being Fairly cynical about product placement while having this cake and eating it as well. Mm. And yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit of a ride for me. The standout characters for me were actually some of the supporting cast. Uh, Irfan mm. Khan um, as Masrani, who's the CEO of the park, I thought the was... eighth richest, guy, eighth in the richest guy in the world. Eighth richest guy in the world. I thought he was really, really good. I liked him a lot. I liked um, uh, Jake Johnson, mm-hmm. um, who's who's kind of a cross between Samuel L. Jackson and Nedry in the first <laughs> one, a little bit, isn't he? Um, yes. But, he, but, but much more likable. Than Nedry, yes. much more likable, but he he I thought was great and basically stole every scene he was in. Um, so it was yeah a lot of the supporting cast I thought were Omar, Omar Sy as well. I kind of wanted to see more of him. I yeah. thought he was a bit underused because they kind of talked about him like he and Chris Pratt were this double act who would be really kind of yeah pivotal together and they didn't actually didn't, develop yeah, that. Didn't turn out that. Yeah. Way, I mean maybe they're planning that for further down the line because this is a film that is clearly thinking ahead. Yeah. Um, in a few aspects, but it, it didn't quite play the way I wanted it to, I think, this time. When you've seen the film, um, come back and have a listen to the spoiler podcast because uh, Trevorrow um, gets into some fun, really fun kind of like little detailed stuff. He talks about the day players. There's lots of sort of one scene characters who, who really shine in this, give lots of texture and, and personality to the film. I think it's just got lots of personality and a lot of... A lot of franchise sequels that are put together sometimes feel a bit bland and a bit workshopped, and this one feels, mm. you know, full of life and vibrant. Yeah, we've talked about this in the podcast before, but Trafaro was one of those wave of new directors who, you know, his first movie was a very low-budget indie, safety not guaranteed, a bit like uh, David Lowry, whose first movie was Ain't Body Saints, and then his next movie is Pete's Dragon. And But they're, they're guys who grew up loving the art house, but also loving the blockbusters. And so they bring a slight art house sensibility to the blockbusters, but they also revel in the, uh, the blockbusterness of it as well. And I think it's great. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely hybrid, if you will. And uh, it's, it's terrific entertainment. Um, slightly baffled by some people who are hating on it, but we'll get into that in the spoiler special, I imagine. Uh, four stars, then. For Jurassic World, and yes, do listen to the Spoiler Special podcast because we have forty minutes with Colin Trevorrow, the director, talking about all sorts of spoilers. Um, it's really, really fun, and of course, Team Empire as well, uh, rattling on about it if that's your thing. Also out this week, uh, Joshua Oppenheimer won a BAFTA a few years ago, and made a real splash with his brilliant documentary, The Act of Killing, and now he's back, back, back with a, a sort of follow-up, I guess, uh, called The Look of Silence. It is a follow-up of sorts. Yeah, of sorts. I mean, it's it's the same the same subject matter. It's uh, basically the 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 fallout um, from a, a coup that happened in 1965 in Indonesia um, when uh, the American-backed um, force basically threw over, overthrew the communist the communist, and there was a massive purge, and a million people were basically slaughtered in that. Um, and that was obviously depicted in the Mel Gibson, Peter Weir, Year of Living Dangerously. So that's that's that story. Josh Oppenheimer's coming and he's, these two films together are basically looking at the impact of the past on the present. And the first one showed 
the, the the perpetrators of this of these horrible crimes, recreating them in an almost kind of gleeful way. It's an extraordinary kind of vision of of you know that 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 cliche, the banality of of evil. Um, and this one it takes it more from the victim's point of view. So so our protagonist is a guy called Addy. He's an he's an optician. He travels around his local area. His parents had him when his brother was was killed in the nineteen sixty five. Um, slaughters as a communist. He was just a petty criminal. Um, and Addy goes around and his parents are much, much older. His brother is obviously a lot older than him, but he goes around and finds the people, the perpetrators of this crime and the other crimes and talks to them and finds out what they did, how they did it. And again, he encounters an extraordinary lack of any kind of moral sense of responsibility, people justifying themselves. There's a threat to him and also by definition to Joshua Oppenheimer. When you watch the final credits rolling, Everyone's anonymous. Everyone that's in, in, in all the crew from Indonesia are unnamed mm. because there's still this is still, you know, these people are still in you know positions of authority and power. Uh, this is a spectacular film. We've given it five stars. Uh, I think it's um, it's a great you know there's a great time for documentary makers. There's people like Asif Kapadia and and Gabe Polsky and uh, obviously people like Errol Morris and Alex Gibney, uh, an older generation perhaps. Um, there's stuff like The Jinx uh, on on HBO. Um, there's some really, really sort of next level uh, direct uh, documentary filmmakers out there, and Joshua Oppenheimer stands in that company. This is an unbelievable movie. It's 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 emotional. It's disturbing. It's very, very powerful, and it's rooted by this guy Addy, who's absolutely fearless in in confronting these people with with the things that they've done. And uh, and you just have to sit there and watch the, the, the consequences and the ramifications and the interviews that take place mm. are breathtaking. I don't know how on earth they made these things happen. I don't know how they got these people to, 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 to front up in front of the camera. I think it's because they just genuinely don't think they did anything wrong. They, they think what they did was, was, was morally justified. Um, but the, the brutality and the horrors are... Uh, are uh, Astonishing. So, yes, five stars, high recommendation, yeah. an incredible movie. Amazing. Five stars then for The Look of Silence. And uh, lastly this week we have another film, which is, this is a hard one to describe, isn't it, as well, Helen? This is London Road. Yeah, this is a documentary musical, Okay. I guess. Um, it's an adaptation of the National Theatre um, show. Now the, it's based on a play which was based on transcribed interviews with Ipswich residents from the area where, um, if you remember, 2006, I think it was, five, the bodies of five prostitutes were found murdered in Ipswich and, and the hunt began for the killer. The killer was found, he's been convicted and sentenced. Um, and this is about kind of the community left behind. It's not actually technically really about the murders themselves. It's not technically about the killer himself. It's about everyone else's reaction to it, essentially. And I guess... To the extent that there is a lead and there really isn't, it would be Olivia Coleman who plays a character called Julie who is a mother and a worker and just a normal person in the area. Um, and she's trying to kind of... Um, first of all, she, like everyone else in the area, is, is affected by these terrible crimes. Um, she and everyone else has been very unhappy about the fact that there are prostitutes hanging around their their road and this sort of what they see as a very nice middle-class area is suddenly being you know, a venue for street walking. But then they're also obviously horrified by the crimes and then they're trying to kind of move on for it. They don't from it. They don't want this to be the only vision people see of their area, of their community. So there's a kind of an, an attempt to kind of reclaim their own sort of space. And so basically that's to the extent that there's a plot, that's the plot. It's mm. about um 
you know, put, I mean, the, the way they've done it, though, is absolutely incredible. They've put people's exact words to music in a sort of Sondheimian kind of a way. Um, every um, every like, every hesitation and repetition is is reproduced in the music. Obviously, they've repeated lines and so on to make choruses and things like that. But all of those lines come from verb, verbatim from... Wow. The, the interviews, which is fascinating. And they actually play them over the credits so you can actually hear some of those lines. Sounds a bit like Claire, Claire Bernard's The Arbor. Yes. Well, it's a similar kind of starting point, but then they've just added this musical element, yeah. basically. Wow. Um, and, and you have a great cast. Uh, Tom Hardy is in there in a tiny, tiny role. Like, he's been quite front and centre in the advertising, yeah, obviously, because yeah. he's Tom Hardy. He's, he's barely in it because I think he was worried about his ability to sing, but he actually does really well. Paul Thornley is great in it as well. It's just a really, really good ensemble. Um, but it's, it's, it's such an unusual piece, and it's also such a, a thoughtful piece because this is not some triumph of the little guy, mm. sort of uncomplicated, moving on story. It, it, there's an element of covering up as well as recovering from. Mm -hmm. which I think makes it much more complicated and much more kind of haunting than it would be if it were just about moving on from these horrific events. So I think it's really, really interesting. It's not going to be for everyone, but we give it four stars. Yeah, it sounds like a really fascinating... If you're not into giant dinosaurs munching and everything they can find... This is a very good, yeah. Yeah, an embarrassment of riches this week, um, which is great. So London Road and The Look of Silence... Uh, in case you're not into Jurassic World. And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by, oh yes, Serene McKellen. He's going to be here uh, to talk about Mr. Holmes and the Entourage Boys uh, from the movie Entourage, based on the hit show Entourage. Adrian Grenier, Kevin Connolly, Jerry Ferrara and Kevin Dillon will all be here in the pod booth and as you might imagine, it was utter chaos. Uh, Ian McKellen is separate to those guys he wasn't here at the same time so that's that's something to look out for uh, in next week's crowded podcast and don't forget after that we also then have our Jurassic World spoiler special podcast which will be up on Monday June 15th with Colin Trafaro and us rattling on about stuff and um, come and see us in Edinburgh don't forget to book tickets for our Edinburgh podcast June 21st uh, and you'll be able to hear that on June 26th it's come around very very quick but do join us it's going to be a blast until then it is goodbye from Helen it is goodbye from Phil. Au revoir. It's goodbye from creepy old man ghost. <laughs> it's uh, goodbye from naughty little girl ghost. <laughs> and it's goodbye from me. I'm off to get Bradley Cooper. Just stop it. Stop it, Bradley Cooper. Stop being better than all of us put together. That guy. That guy. I love him. Really. See you next week.